The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Well, there was a story recently about new emerging artificial intelligence tourism tours of various cities around the world. It's a far cry from our next guest who has spent many years doing them the tried and trusted way. Pat Liddy's walking tour business has been roaming the streets of Dublin for almost two decades. I joined Pat for a ramble and to hear some stories along the way. Pat, lovely to meet you. We're here at Dublin's Wood Quay, steeped in the history of the city, and we can talk about that in a moment. But how did you get into this business in the first place? Well, I was born and reared in Fibsborough, uh, quite close to city centre, and we didn't have a lot of money in those days. And I always walked into town, never got the bus. So I'd explore on the way in, always go a different way, come home a different way, explore the highways, but mostly the byways and the laneways and so forth. So I began to get to know Dublin. And it was always a curiosity to me. But the main curiosity to me was why we were letting Dublin fall into a shambles. Now, I joined Aer Lingus uh, in 1963 and I uh, used the, the free travel or the discounted travel to literally travel all over the world. And I began to see people were caring for their cities a lot better than we were in Dublin. And that puzzled me. So I felt, oh, what can I do about that? That interest in the history of Dublin that you had stayed with you and you you used to write about Dublin and what was happening to it. In the 1980s, I cheekily uh, wrote a letter to the editor of the Irish Times and said, I would like to maybe do a drawing. I was always into drawing. Uh, I'd like to do a drawing of buildings in Dublin, the important buildings and the not so important buildings. And that those drawings, maybe somebody could write a little history uh, maybe a feature of six drawings to try and bring attention to the city centre. I got a reply from Douglas Gageby, who was the editor of the Irish Times at the time, very famous man, said, yes, we'd love this idea, but you have to do the writing. And here was I that barely passed the leaving certificate in English as to write for the Irish Times. So, yes, I plunged into that. And right through the 1980s, from about 82, I think, up to 89, I had a weekly column in the Irish Times highlighting some little part of Dublin, usually some small building of no great importance, but it had a human story. So, if you like, I was doing portraits of Dublin, trying to bring out the human history, the human connections and the real histories. And it became very, very popular and people were cutting it out. I met somebody last week who said, oh, I have an album of all your articles in the Irish Times. And that started a conversation. The column was called Dublin Today. And uh, from that, uh, my first book, uh, published by the Irish Times, came out, uh, called Dublin Today. And then in 1987, in time for the millennium celebrations in 1988, I came out with another book called Dublin Be Proud. Now, that title was deliberate. I was trying to get people to be proud of their city. Well, talking about pride in the city and the history of the city, Woodkey is so significant. Just tell us about why this matters so much, this part of Dublin. The Vikings uh, explored the possibilities of various parts of Ireland for plundering, but that didn't satisfy their needs. They had to settle here at some point. And so the Vikings were the first people to build the towns that eventually became the cities of Ireland. 
So the Vikings set up the port of Dublin and they traded both externally and internally. And it became a port of import and export. Imported where the kind of goods they wanted and the Irish wanted, uh, like amber uh, and other forms of jewellery, uh, weapons, if you like, wine, very important, which we couldn't uh, produce ourselves. And we exported animals, the hides of animals. Wool was a big thing. And of course, Dublin became a, a very large shipbuilding uh, centre. What about the people trade? Was there slavery at that time? Ah, yes. Well, uh, should I say it? But Dublin actually became one of the chief centres, if not the biggest centre for slave trading in Northern Europe. And of course, it wasn't just the Vikings raiding into internal Ireland and capturing slaves and selling them on. But they traded with Irish chieftains because Irish chieftains were always battling with each other. They would, the winner would grab slaves and then they said there's a market in Dublin or a market in Waterford and they sold the slaves onto the Vikings who needed the slaves to uh, populate their new uh, colonies in places like Iceland and Greenland. Sure. Well, will we move on to our next stop on this uh, tour, path. Well, I'm going to take you uh, over to Bride Street and into St. Patrick's Park to have a look at... Uh, another phenomenon of Dublin, a big trading phenomenon in its day, the Liberties. Great, lead the way. Did that work? So we're here, Pat, right beside St. Patrick's Cathedral near Bride Street. Tell us a bit about this area. This area was just outside the city walls. One of the first suburbs, if you like. And uh, it became a Liberty eventually. In other words, the Liberty of St. Patrick's. And then there was the Liberty of St. Sepulchre and the Liberty of St. Thomas. There were a number of Liberties, six or seven. And uh, if you like, t- collectively, they're called the Liberties, which is a phrase well known to Dubliners. And what did that mean for somewhere to be called a Liberty? It meant it went under the jurisdiction of a local church, cathedral or abbey. And as such, was designated by one of the kings of England, starting with Henry II. And a liberty did not have to pay taxes to the city itself. And they could um, have their own taxes, which generally were a lot cheaper than the taxes of the city. So this became a tax incentive area, for the want of a better phrase. An early tax incentive area. (laughs) Yes, from basically the 12th century. And we're still doing it. (laughs) Well, is there anything new? But this was very important at the time of the 16th, 17th century, especially towards the end of the 17th century. And what happened then? Well, with an influx of migrants, we had thousands of Huguenots coming in. uh, And after the wars with William uh, III and James II, uh, thousands of Dutch ex-army, Dutch army, who fought for William, uh, no longer, he couldn't pay them. So he allowed them to stay in Ireland and work here and get land and so forth. So they settled here as well. And then around 1709, uh, hundreds of Palatines settled in Dublin. You might say, who are the Palatines? Well, these were all basically business people, Switzers, of Switzers' department store fame. He was a Palatine. They all settled here in the Liberties because of the cheaper taxes. And they made this into basically an industrial zone. The linen and the woolen industries absolutely thrived here and it's very much associated. The area called the tenters in the Liberties is where they used to stretch the wool after washing. Uh, And they looked like tents and hooks kept the 
the, the wool stretched, so they were on tenter hooks. That's where that phrase comes from. So it was a hub of industry. Yes. When, just going back to yourself, and you had talked about writing for the Irish Times, you had this huge interest in history and in Dublin, what was happening. When did the tour guiding come along and how did that happen? That happened quite accidentally. As I said, I'd written a number of books at this stage. Um, I had worked with, um, almost as a lobbyist, trying, you know, with the Dublin City Centre Business Association, uh, trying to get the city in better order. And uh, all of that uh, led some business people to think that, gosh, uh, Pat, you know so much about Dublin, why don't you do walking tours? Never had dawned on me. This wasn't a lifelong ambition. I was kind of catapulted into it. There were only two companies at the time. You're talking about 2004-ish, 2005. Uh, there was one operating from Trinity College. Uh, there was a 1916 tour. Uh, and that was about it. So when I started up my company, of course, I wasn't welcomed necessarily, but they were very polite about it. Uh, and uh, it was a very slow start, very difficult start. I mean, how do you get the information out there? And this is in a period before websites and social media. Where is your favourite place in Dublin? A difficult one. Ask Arthur Guinness, which was his favourite of 21 children. Uh, I probably have 21 favourite sites. I love around Merrion Square because it's nice and quiet, very elegant, and uh, everything that's on show there is of interest to visitors no matter where they're from. The old Georgian area, uh, Oscar Wilde statue, lovely Swenny's Pharmacy, which is now a shrine to James Joyce. Another favourite place of mine, despite the recent chaos on the street, is O'Connell Street. It's a beautiful street of beautiful architecture. Uh, it was destroyed completely, or 90% destroyed, between 1916 and 1922, and has been restored really beautifully. It's a great example of how to restore a street in a contemporary fashion, contemporary in the 1920s. Uh, there, there are lots and lots of stories, because the street has been there since the 1670s, let's face it. And in your own work then, the tour guide element of things took off. I mean, it, it sort of grew and grew, didn't it? It did, but uh, it wasn't... If, if business is about profit, I didn't have profit for years and years and years. I was always able to pay my way, pay the guides, but not myself. And it was only my faith in the product itself and in what we were doing and that it was enhancing people's experience of the city in a way that wasn't done before necessarily, that I kept at it. And it has turned around. It started to turn around 2018 and 19. Then we know what happened in 2020. And I was kept going with government grants. I, I, I can't thank those grants enough. And we're back with a bang. And uh, we seem to each year to be better than the year previous. How many guides do you have now? At the moment, I have 47 guides and I'm training uh, a number of others. Uh, well, I'm training people to become tour guides that wouldn't necessarily all want to join my team. But out of the 16, I hope to get another eight or nine for next year because the growth is there without question. You talked about how the business had changed. You know, when you started, there weren't very many. There are lots and lots now. And there are even free tours as well. How, how does that work? Well, first of all, uh, at my last count, there were about 50 companies doing walking tours. And the free tours, it's a model, it's copied from the European model, which has been around for years and years. Uh, basically, you pay the guide a tip and he pays something to the company. Uh, but to make that work, they have to be very big groups. Whereas I tend uh, to only have small groups, say a maximum of 15 or 16. 
And in fact, that's a trend that's coming across Europe now. Even in Amsterdam, they have a city ordinance uh, which prevents groups from being more than 15 people. Otherwise, the guide loses a licence. You've written several books. You have a new book and it fits very well into your passion for history because it's all about maps. Uh, it's the history of Ireland and maps. Now, this is the first time I've written a book outside of Dublin, so I wasn't in my comfort zone. But that's the challenge, and I like a challenge. And it came to me during COVID, and I said, oh, yeah, I'll get around to that. And, of course, COVID was over before I even started looking at the, at the prospect of researching and writing this book. And it was a very difficult book to write. I said, this is an international book. HarperCollins are publishing it. It'll be all over the world. So this is an opportunity to do little... Uh, short, snappy stories about every important event, uh, event in Irish history and get it down there. And each event would be uh, covered with a map, usually a contemporary map, which is very interesting. So I had to research, get those maps and uh, have them published in the book. Do we have many maps from those big historical events? Is, is there a big collection out there, probably in different locations and with different ownership and museums and everything and libraries? But are there many maps over that, those centuries? Well, the earliest map of Ireland uh, is called the Ptolemy map, which dates from the first century, but it wasn't actually drawn then, or no copy has been found. It's been redrawn based on a description. So uh, in 650 uh, is the first map I could locate that shows Ireland as part of Europe. And from that point onwards, uh, the maps were mostly drawn by um, sailors, by companies, cartographers in places like London or Amsterdam or Antwerp, the great ports, so sailors would know uh, how to get here. But they're terribly distorted. And the first accurate map of Dublin, did not, or of Ireland, sorry, so used to saying Dublin, of Ireland came out in the 1680s. And that's called the Down Survey Map or the William Petty Map. What was the inspiration for maps? Trade, taxation and war. And for all of those reasons, uh, maps began to proliferate. Up to then, up to the petty map, very inaccurate. One of the things I've noticed from looking at old maps of Ireland is that they tended to be, hundreds of years ago, they tended to be fairly accurate at doing the coastline, probably because of shipping and trade. But when they moved inland, all the towns were in the wrong places. That's quite true, but I take it even a step further. They were relatively accurate about the coastline on the east coast, the south coast, and maybe up as far as Galway. But Mayo and Donegal were very badly represented because there was no trade to these areas. And it was one of the reasons the poor old Spanish Armada became a cropper, because their maps were totally distorted. A really old map, like you mentioned about one from 650. What, what in Ireland was on the map? Okay, well, you know, the towns uh, hadn't been established. So it might be uh, just names of tribes, for instance. That's about it. And some monasteries. It's whatever the map man person uh, knew to exist. Uh, the Ptolemy map is basically only tribes because we had no uh, settlements as such. Uh, we also had maps that showed places that didn't exist ever. Uh, there's a famous map which shows High Brazil, off the coast of Galway, which is a substantial island, maybe is represented as big as the Isle of Man. And it was put in there as if it existed. It's a totally mythical island. It's as mythical as Lilliput. But are we sure? Maybe we just haven't found it. <laughs> maybe it's just sunk down and it's waiting to come back up again. <laughs> you obviously enjoyed the whole 
process of, of looking at such a large sweep of history through maps. It gave me a new look at history and why maps were drawn. After the colonisation fall of Hugh O'Neill in the Nine Years' War in the early 1600s, the English would have seen map-making as part of that colonisation process, particularly in Ulster. It was a way of demarcating land ownership and things like that. The Native Irish were quite suspicious of map-makers, weren't they? Oh, they, they would try and kill them sometimes. And the early map-makers, especially uh, the William Petty survey, uh, they had to have uh, armed escorts. Uh, going around certain parts of the, the country and there was kind of the suspicion as you say now who might you be and what might you be doing kind of attitude nevertheless in a short four years or so they had mapped Ireland in a way that was never mapped for any other country in the world it was the biggest most accurate map ever produced anywhere in the world by the 1680s with all of that knowledge of all that history of Dublin in particular over such a long period, when you look at the city today and what you did in highlighting derelict buildings and part of the heritage not being taken care of, how would you describe it now? And are you hopeful about, uh, about the future for Dublin? Oh, I have to be, and I am. But I think in some cases, while we were probably starting to get it right around the turn of this century, I think we have lost emphasis. We've lost our way to some extent. Uh, perhaps the putting in of cycle lanes and not being able to... And we need the cycle lanes, there's no question about it, but it's caused a lot of disruption. And it means a lot of people might not be coming into the city centre like they used to. And there are not enough people living in the city centre, but we're moving in the right way. But we have to answer the fact that living over the shop, i.e. in O'Connell Street or Grafton Street, absolutely nobody lives on those streets. We can't have life in the city centre without people also living and committed to the city centre. And somehow we will, but we have to solve that problem. Pat Liddy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Thank you very, very much, Richard. Pat Liddy of Pat Liddy Tours and author of A History of Ireland in Maps there.